0: A ghost points out his murderers to a group of assassins. And then we take a look at the story of Sada Abe, part time prostitute, part time restaurant employee, all time one of Japan's most notorious criminals, today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio, I'm your host Jason Carpenter, I'm having a great day, I hope you are having a great day too. we got a lot of stuff to cover today, so we're just going to jump right into it, but I want to say, hope you guys are having a happy Monday, or, if you're listening to this episode in the future, I hope you're having a happy blank day. Let's go ahead and move on to our first story though, and that is going to be the story of Wong. We don't have his first name, that might be his first name, but... There's not a lot of details to the personal who Wong was, but it's an interesting story nonetheless, and then we'll kind of dig into it a little deeper, a little deeper, because I think there's some, I have some questions about it, debunking-wise, but it's still an interesting story, hold on. The year, the early 1900s. It's a little saloon town, (laughs) beautiful women well back for them they're probably really gross thinking about it now but you had saloon town you had rootin tootin saloons gun slingers but mostly gold miners in this town we're in the town of whiskey flat it's this little town in California. Dun-dun-dun. Okay, enough of the music. Enough of the music. But anyways, we're in the town of Whiskey Flat, And there we find a young man named Wong. He's a Chinese cook. He's a cook who happened to be Chinese, I guess would be a better way to say that. He, he wasn't making Chinese food. He was making Chinese food for, I mean, he was making food for miners. Not little kids, but he was making food for um, miners. You know what I'm saying. Gold miners. So early 1900s. Little kids may have ate it. I don't know. Well, one day he's making dinner. And a white woman comes in and starts making moves on him. And he's like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm I'm kind of busy right now. Plus, you're really, really drunk. So I'm going to kind of say no to this. And she's still kind of like coming on to him. And he's like, no, listen, I, no means no. And the white woman leaves. And she tells these five loggers nearby that Wong had raped her. Now... I gotta say this is an aside. How, it's been 20, 30 years since, I'm 42, so it's been a long time since I've been in school, and especially like high school, middle school. How do they, do they, st- first question, do they still teach to kill a mockingbird in school? And two, how do they teach that part of it? Because a huge part of that is the white woman making up the rape allegation. Like, how do they teach that today? But, you know, it did happen. It did happen where a white woman would accuse an ethnic minority of rape, and then, the good, would the good, the good, never had a good result. Never had a good result. So, she, fig- she points him out and says, that guy raped me. And these five loggers, they go. So, the five men walk into the Chinese, not Chinese restaurant. The five men walk into the kitchen, and they grab the cook, and they pull him out. They string him up, and they hang him. They lynch him. And then, they go into the kitchen and eat his food that he was making for them. Very, very cold-blooded. Very, very cold-blooded. Now, there was an investigation into the murder of Wong. It wasn't just like, ah, he's just a Chinese cook. We don't got to worry about this guy. Like, people were, like, he was well-liked. People were like, wonder what happened to that guy? Like, well, they found his body. He didn't go missing. But they couldn't find any proof that anyone did anything. Everyone was keeping their mouths shut. But a few months later, these five other Chinese men come to Whiskey Flack. They didn't look for work. They had a bunch of money in their pocket kept to themselves everyone was thinking that's weird i mean it's not like seeing chinese people was weird but they come here for work and these guys are just kind of walking around the town not doing anything so one of the men that the woman had grabbed to help her with wong he goes missing never found him never found a body and then another one of the men goes missing a couple weeks later another one of the men goes missing One by one, eventually, all five of the loggers go missing. And when the last logger who was involved in Wong's murder disappeared, the five men left town. Now, the idea in town was that the five men were a member of the Dong. It was the basically the Chinese mafia. And they used Taoist techniques to contact the spirit of Wong, and he pointed out each person who had something to do with his murder and after they were done seeking vengeance they left town today the city of whiskey flat is no more it was actually flooded and it's at the bottom of lake isabella lake isabella is near kernville california and sometimes the lake gets so lowered you can actually see the tops of buildings because the town was just flooded in there I wasn't able to tell whether or not it was flooded naturally or they built a dam. I, I was looking for that. I couldn't figure that out. But but people still say that to this day, sometimes hovering over the lake, you'll see the spirit of Wong pointing his finger at the men who killed him. Now, that's the story. <sighs> Here's the thing, and when I read it, I go, that's a fascinating story, but I have a couple things to debunk it. One, why wasn't the woman killed? There's no mention of the woman ever again. And why would the ghost still be pointing out in the middle of the lake? Like, just pointing at random people in rowboats. And, how would you be able to see it if you're on the coast of the lake, and you saw something pointing at you? You'd be like, what? Why are you pointing? You'd be like, looking behind you, you'd be like, what? Are you pointing at what? Who are are you? pointing at me? You're pointing at me? What did I do? I just came here. And the little ghost guy pointing at you. The reason why I wanted to cover this story, I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true. Some of the details are true. Whiskey Flat was real. There really is a city at the bottom of Lake Isabella. We know those two facts are true. But the reason why I wanted to cover this is because I almost feel like somebody worked backwards. Because the story itself doesn't really make sense. How would the five guys be able to contact... How would they know he was killed in the first place and then he, they go there... And they're talking to his ghost, and he's pointing people out, but he doesn't point out the woman, and he points them out one by one. And here's the most interesting thing, thinking about this as a debunker. No one in the town knew who killed him. So if the story's true, why would they think those five people who went missing in a mining town, which is fairly transient to begin with, if nobody knew who the suspects were in the first place and five people went missing, how would they make the connection? It'd be one thing if the people in town knew who did it, but they couldn't prove it. But they didn't know who did it. Just five people left, and they're like, oh, they must have been the guys who hung Wong. So it was a lot of weird coincidences. This is what I think happened, though. This is how I think. And I think this is why I wanted to talk about this story as well. There may or may not be a ghost pointing over the lake of uh, Lake Isabella. There may or may not be a ghost there. Could be a trick of the light. Could be an urban legend. Could be a ghost. But what I think happened was, and we'll talk about a couple other stories this week where this has happened. Is that somebody, let's say that there is a ghost floating over the lake of Lake Isabella. Pointing at people. Somebody created the story to explain the ghost. They saw a ghost. Again, how are you supposed to tell his ethnicity on a lake? You're in a rowboat. You're, You're hundreds of yards away. I don't think they were super close to this dude. Otherwise, he'd be like picking their nose. He'd be like poking them in the eyeball. If you saw a misty figure 300 yards away, I don't think you'd be like, hmm, that guy's probably from Bulgaria. Like, you'd just be like, it's a ghost. But anyways, so unless he was, like, wearing, like, a super, like, traditional Chinese outfit, he's a ghost. He doesn't look like Liu Kang or anything like that. Like, he's not, like, dressed in traditional clothes. He's just wearing, like, cook clothes. Anyways, what I think happened is that somebody saw a ghost, and then the story was crafted. To, f- to create this narrative. That really doesn't make sense when you put any weight on it. And the reason why I think that's interesting. It makes you think how many other haunted places. May have this same thing. They're like oh if it's a ghost. Something tragic must have happened here. And we actually we saw that with the town of Dudleyville. Where people thought the town was haunted. And then they made up this whole backstory About this guy pissing off the king of England. And getting sent to Dudleyville. And none of that stuff was true. None of it was true. Interesting take on the ghost story. Are sometimes, are there real ghosts, but the stories we create to explain them are the thing that's made up and the thing that's easily debunkable? Is there really a ghost pointing at people out in the middle of the lake? Who knows? But it wasn't Wong, and that story almost 100% never happened. Like, I'll debunk the story before I can debunk the ghost. So, our next story is the story of Sada. Abe. Now, yes, I do know in my episode about the guy who loved euthanasia, I called the president of Japan, Shinzo Abe, and I was corrected very quickly not just on YouTube comments but a friend of mine in real life punched me in the arm and said, it's Abe! idiot. <laughs> and then when the, it's so telling because the guy who sent me this Amreel sent me this story via email. When I got the email, Amreel said now, Jason? This is how you pronounce the girl's name. It's Abe. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But you know, he's just looking out for me. So thank you, Amriel. Thank you for this suggestion. Now, this is the story of Sada Abe. Bizarre, bizarre crime. And it's one of those things that I think if you're not in Japan, you've never heard of this. Ever. I never heard of this before. And it's it's quite gruesome and incredibly famous. We're going back to the year of 1905 and we see a little baby girl named Sada Abe. Her mother loved Sada, taking care of her. Her father was also pretty appreciative of her, but he was a little more stern. She had an older sister and an older brother. And from all accounts, her early life was fairly normal. Normal in the sense of Japan. So... Her sister, her older sister was a little slutty, a little loose. And apparently, this was a thing back then. You know that thing, like, if you get caught smoking a cigarette and your dad's like, you like cigarettes? You like cigarettes? Here, smoke a whole pack. And you're like, oh, 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 and you eventually get nicotine poisoning and get really sick and throw up. And you're like, I'm never smoking another cigarette again. In Japan, they did that for sex. So when. Sada's older sister was sleeping around. The dad was like, Oh, you like sleeping around? You like banging dudes? You like banging dudes? Bang 30 dudes! And he dropped her off at a brothel. And she just started banging dudes. It, I don't imagine it works the same as it does with cigarettes. But apparently that's what they did back then. So, you kind of know where part of the story's going. Sada, as she's getting older, She starts to get, first off, she actually starts uh, taking singing lessons and she started learning this instrument called the shamisen, the shamisen, which back then was more connected to the geisha culture and geishas were still basically like had a foot in the prostitute culture and they had legal brothels and unlicensed brothels and stuff like that. And geishas, you had high level geishas who would just perform and then you had lower level geishas who were there to bang the people being the dudes you came to visit. So, but anyways, she starts singing. They didn't have any YouTube back then, so singing would really only lead to one thing. And she's learning this instrument, and she starts to become really rebellious. She starts hanging out with the wrong crowd, she starts skipping school, she starts wearing a lot of makeup. So, all really early warning signs of someone who may have trouble in the future. At this point in time, she ends up getting raped by a friend. She's still fairly, she's like in high school at this point, the equivalent of high school in Japan. And her parents are, you know, defend her and are like, okay, we have your back. But then she starts to become even more uncontrollable and lashing out at them and not going to school and stuff like that and sleeping around all the time. So at that point, the dad goes, worked with your sister. And he sent her to a brothel. You like banging dudes? Bang 50 dudes. So she's at the brothel. She ends up becoming a prostitute. Now we're jumping ahead to the 1930s. So at this point, she's around 25 years old. She ends up working at a licensed brothel. She steals money from them. She gets in trouble. She goes to an unlicensed brothel. She's not supposed to be working there. I think the place gets raided. She gets in trouble. She's kind of moving around. And in in this time period, she actually went to a geisha house. Because she's like, oh, I can be a geisha because I have all these skills. But she goes there and she she realizes that to be a traditional geisha you had to start practicing like full-on geisha training at a super young age. So they said, "You can come and work for us, but you have to be a low-level geisha. You're just going to bang dudes." So basically, she's still a prostitute, now she's just wearing geisha makeup. But that's when she starts meeting all of these high-profile people and one of them says, "You got to start thinking about a career path. You got to start thinking about the future. You can't do this forever." You should open a small restaurant. You go into business for yourself. And and it's funny because I imagine, like, as he's giving her this fatherly advice, he's banging her. But he was trying to help her and saying, you know, you just can't do this forever. And he goes, why don't you go to this restaurant, get a job, learn the trade, and then in a couple of years, you can go and open your own little restaurant. And she thought, that is a good idea. Because you're right, I can't do this forever. Now we're jumping to the year 1936. She does get a job at a restaurant. She's a server. And she meets Kichizo Ishidi. Kichizo Ishidi. He's the married owner of the restaurant. She's smitten by him. She has no problem sleeping with a married man. She was a prostitute. She'd done it all the time. And she starts to kind of try to seduce him. And it works very, very quickly. Very quickly. Young woman. He's he's like 42. He's totally into her he's like yeah let's do this and basically it's one of those things where hey let's go away for the weekend and have sex and they did but the weekend became two weeks they just couldn't get out of bed now she had always talked about how no one could really she probably had nymphomania at a certain point because she was constantly talking about how she couldn't be sated like she needed a man who could really satisfy her she found one in this man She found one in this man. He could pleasure her like nobody else could. But after two weeks, he's like, you know, I do have a restaurant to run. Plus my wife. So I'll see you at work tomorrow. And he bounces. And she becomes insanely jealous. Super, super jealous. She pawns. This is one of the details that I thought was quite odd. She pawns some of her clothes off to buy a kitchen knife. First question, how expensive were kitchen knives in Imperial Japan? Second question, she works at a restaurant. Couldn't she have just gotten a kitchen knife there? But for whatever reason, it must be a jewel-encrusted, monogrammed kitchen knife. She pawns some of her clothes, gets this fancy dancy kitchen knife. And the next time they meet up, she says, I'm going to kill you. And she pulls a knife on him and puts it to him. And he laughs it off. He's like, ah, whatever. And they bang each other. Now, I'm all down for crazy chicks. I think every guy loves a little bit of crazy in their chick. But there's a limit. Like, that's... the <laughs> And that is the limit. Pulling a weapon on me is the limit. If you pull a weapon on me and say you're going to kill me, then I'm done. I don't care how, how hot you are. But anyways, so they start making love again. And at one point, in between their lovemaking, I'm assuming, otherwise she has a death wish... She takes the knife, and she puts it to the base of his penis. Now, I, I'm going to let you guys know, there are going to be several parts where you may want to cross your legs during the story. This isn't even close to, to, to one of them. She puts a knife to the base of his dick and says, I'm going to make sure you never take another woman as a lover. And he laughs it off. He's like, oh, oh Sada. Oh, you little scamp. They start banging again. Okay, dude, playing with fire they're banging each other again and she starts to choke him like hands wrapped around his neck cutting off blood the carotid artery all that stuff and then she stops and he's like oh my god that feels so good do it again do it again so okay so she does they're having sex she keeps choking him now and he's like oh i love this i love this so much this is so good so then he starts choking her. They do a little bit of choke play back and forth. But Sada, Sada should, it should be pretty clear. Sada's already a little nuts. But she's also madly, madly in love with this person. And she seems to be into the bit of the rough stuff too. So she, the reason why I'm saying that, because she starts escalating it. She takes her sash, her Obi sash, which is the thing that you wrap around your waist. She wraps it around his neck. And they're still having sex at this point. Again, these two people just cannot stop banging each other. She starts choking him with the sash. To the point, and I didn't even know this was possible. I actually tried looking this up online to find out if this was physically possible. And at a certain point, I was like, I don't want to start seeing pictures of it. She chokes him so hard while they're having sex. That when they're done and she releases the sash... His face is distorted in a look of pain. There's such a lack of oxygen to the face and the head that he's like, oh, like his jaw's all jacked up and his eyes droopy. Like he was basically about to die, that level of choking. And he's sitting there now in bed going, oh, oh, and he can't move his face. It's paralyzed. He they, he had this stuff called this is a great name for a medicine. It's called Calmotin. Calmotin was basically like a muscle relaxer. I think you can still buy it over the counter in Japan, but it, definitely back then you could buy it. It's called Calmotin. You would take it, and he he took thirty tablets of this muscle relaxer slash pain reliever to soothe the pain that he was going through because his face is all jacked up. Oh oh. And obviously, he's super drugged out. 30 pills of anything is going to mess you up. As he starts to just pass out from the drugs, he says, You'll put the cord around my neck and squeeze it again while I'm sleeping, won't you? If you start to strangle me, don't stop. Because it is so painful afterward. Passes out. And what's so bizarre, as if none of that was weird, she said, and I saw this quote multiple times, she said, I figured he was joking. I figured he was joking. But he falls asleep, his face is still jacked up, it's still totally like, oh. It's 2 a.m. in the morning. Sada's still awake, laying next to him. She knows what's going to happen. He's going to wake up, put his clothes back on. He's going to look in the mirror. Oh, I look great. I'm sure his face (laughs) will return to normal at some point. But again, I don't know how this works with the muscle spasms and the choking. But anyways, she's not thinking long term with his face all jacked up. She's thinking short term. She goes, this is what's going to happen. He's going to wake up. He's going to put on his clothes. He's going to kiss me goodbye. He's going to go home to his wife. I love him so much Can't let him do that. She takes her Obi sash, wraps it around his neck. He's deep asleep due to the drugs, and she just pulls that sash till he dies. Then <laughs> she grabs a knife, her famous kitchen knife, and she and she said this or later on, people asked her why she did this, and so she goes, Well, because I couldn't take the head or body with me. I wanted to take the part of him that brought back to me the most vivid memories. She takes her knife, cuts off his balls and his dick. Just like cutting baloney on a hot summer day. Just peels it off. She does a little graffiti in the room. She writes like her name and his name on his thigh and blood and then like signs her name on the bed sheet with a knife. Like she carves her name in with a knife. Her plan is this. She's going to take his dick and balls and go to this mountain and jump off. And they're basically killing each other together. That was her plan. But first, you know, she leaves the scene and his body's found shortly afterwards. Huge national panic because they find this guy, this respectable business owner, who's strangled and his dick and balls are missing and nobody knows why. Huge national panic, to the point that people were saying that they they knew who did it, because she signed her name. People were seeing her all over Japan. At one point, a near-stampede broke out and a huge traffic jam because somebody thought she was in the area. Which I don't think that she's just randomly walking around neighborhoods cutting dicks off, but they didn't know that at the time. They just knew that this chick cut this dude's genitals off and took off. So people saw her, and it was basically the equivalent of seeing Freddy Krueger in Times Square. People just bounced. So she's on the run, and while she's at a hotel under an assumed name, she's like, you know what? She's sitting there with uh, this dude's genitals, and she's like, you know what? I really miss my boyfriend, but what I miss even more is banging my boyfriend. She then blows the dick. She has oral sex with a severed penis. And she's like, well, that was okay, but it's not what I'm really missing. Then she tries banging the dick. This severed dick and balls she tries to have sex with. Doesn't work, obviously, because one of the key components of an erect penis is blood, and that's the one thing that's lacking from a severed penis. But she gave it a good old college try. Didn't work. Completely unsatisfied. Left wanting once again in her life. Even her greatest lover can't satisfy her now. Or the one part that she loved the most. Or had the most vivid memories for, at least. Her plan, then, is to go up to the mountain. Jump off this mountain holding his dick and balls. And die. It ends the last moment of her life. With the only man that ever pleased her. But the cops catch her before that. The cops actually track her down to this hotel. They arrest her. And that's where we get all these confessions. Because there's basically this huge interrogation that goes on. Tons of information. Her trans, her interrogation transcripts return into books. The nation was fascinated by this story. In Japan back then. It's still around now. But especially back then. They have a thing called EroGuro. Which is like erotica grotesque. We had the same thing in America around the same time. Now, the grotesque doesn't mean gory. It means, in this sense, it means corruption and decadence. If you look at the old pulps in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, you would have women smoking cigarettes holding a machine gun. very decadent, like you had this beautiful blonde bombshell who was corrupted by criminal life. It was very sexy. That was the same thing that was going on over there. You had a big movement of women killers. Like people were really fascinated by women who were smoking and drinking and killing people. And so she basically became a real life version of what all these people were reading about in their pulp magazines. To the point, I thought this was fascinating. Imagine you're on trial. Imagine you're sitting. No, better yet. Imagine you're the prosecutor for a sex crime. And it's the first day of court. And you got all your little you got like your your right pencils and pens you got your briefcase full of paper and all that stuff and the judge walks up to the stand and the judge walks up there and says okay so i've been going over the notes i've been following this trial and i have to admit i'm a little turned on i got a boner i got a boner reading about this trial imagine you're a prosecutor in that trial that's what the japanese judge did on the first day of court the Japanese judge said, hey, listen, guys, I got to admit, I'm a little turned on by all this stuff. It gets me sexually excited, but I'll keep it serious. Let's get started. But I, I it boggles my mind that he would ever admit admit that. But, and also, you got to question what part turned him on, all the sex or the dick and the balls? Getting, like, being carried around town, like in some sort of Tamagotchi. The thing is, is that she, the trial, despite that odd beginning, the trial went normally. She was found guilty. She was only sentenced to six years. She served five and was released. She could never really integrate back into society. She was just way too famous. She changed her name. She met another man. But once that man's family found out who she was, they totally broke off ties with her. And she just kind of floated around society and stuff like that. What I think is fascinating about the story, other than everything else that I just said, like the necrophilia and the crime of passion and the broken childhood and all that stuff that's just fascinating about the human condition, is that depending on what time period you were in, she has become a different figure. At that time, she was considered an example of what happens when women get too powerful. This is what happens when women start sleeping around, and this is what happens when women get too uppity for their own good. As time went on, she became this counterculture, especially after the fall of Imperial Japan, she became this counterculture rebel who was sticking it to the man, literally. Like, she took it, took the war to men. She's a feminist icon. She's a counterculture hero. And it, the truth, actually, is neither of those things. That's what I think is fascinating. There's been tons of thought pieces both before the war and after the war explaining why they think that she's either a hero or a warning sign for the way society was headed. But the thing, that, the thing that's important to note about those things is that that is taking a normal person and elevating them to a some sort of symbol. The fact of the matter is, she was just a normal person. And to me, that's ten times more terrifying it's ten times more terrifying. I don't think Sada was either of those things. I think she was just a person who obviously had some separation anxiety. No pun intended. She couldn't... Uh, uh, she was so jealous. She couldn't allow this person to leave her. It was just a quote-unquote... Nor- not normal, but she was a human being. She wasn't an icon. She wasn't a movement or anything like that. She was a human being... Who was so attached to another human that she did the unspeakable. And this is the question I ask to you guys. What is more likely f- to happen in your life? For you to meet a, a, an icon or a symbol of something. Or for you to meet a crazy person. What's more likely? I almost feel like those two explanations for her actually try to calm people. Because it's really hard to think then. If you think that she was this other thing, it's a lot easier to dismiss that she was just a cook working at a restaurant who fell in love with her owner. Which is far more scary. Far more scary. Because you're going to run into those people. You're going to run into the normal girl who seems normal, who seems pretty, who has all the right things to say. And when you're not with her, she's pawning her clothes to buy a knife. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.